You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello, out there. Overly friendly people are great to have in the world, peppered in amongst us like little bursts of spice and what normally might just be a boring, bland bowl of fettuccine. shut the fuck up. Overly friendly people make me nervous for them because being friendly to everyone is not safe. You never know who you may be giving the wrong idea, who you may be inviting across a boundary, especially as a woman. Well, so what's that mean? I can't be friendly because there may be a scumbag and lie at the grocery store? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yes. But it's up to you, obviously. Not everyone is accustomed to being treated kindly, especially scumbags. And sometimes when you're friendly to a scumbag, they take that as an invitation to enter your life to stalk you, to have an expectation. And when you finally exhaust your friendly self to the point where you need to draw a line with these types, there's no guarantee that that line is going to work. So be careful who you smile at. Be careful who you talk to. Be careful who you accept gifts from or compliments even from. Because a reciprocation of friendliness from a manipulative, entitled, insecure, vindictive type of person is not friendliness at all. It's an investment and they won't be happy when it doesn't pay off. Welcome to Dark Topic, I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. The mayor of City Island. It's almost lunchtime for the construction crew working to replace a water main in the northeast section of the Bronx. City Island, an oasis on the edge of Long Island Sound, is a particularly quaint section of New York. With a population of just under 5,000, it's somewhat exclusive, literally detached from the bustling metropolis surrounding it. At the risk of sounding like a travel agent, it's maybe helpful to know when envisioning City Island that it's often described as the Cape Cod of the Bronx. There's a small town, a summer town vibe here. Plenty of seafood restaurants, marinas, and old Victorian homes. There's magic here. It's special. And the construction workers looking over at us with that patient impatience all road crews seem to exude are likely pleased to have been assigned here for the past year or so. None more than 52-year-old Elizabeth Mass, apparently. Hey, hello, how are you? God, she's friendly. 
Liz has time for everyone, holding her stop sign like a talking stick, often holding it beyond the signal from her radio to spin it around, just to finish some conversation with a perfect stranger, before finally showing the word slow, waving waiting cars through with the enthusiasm of a child. The Mayor of City Island. That's what her crew calls her. Being one of the only women working with a bunch of gorillas, Liz is much more than friendly. She's confident, tough, honest, real. They respect her. And Liz, even though the job of sign spinner is low on the road work totem pole, makes it look good. She isn't demeaned in any way by it. Liz loves the job. And the result is that the whole site, the whole neighborhood, every car that funnels through this chewed up section of City Island is baptized by the spirit of Liz Mass. Every day is easier, brighter, when the mayor of City Island is hard at work handing out wholesome. It's half past noon. It's springtime in New York of 2021. Her eyes smile bright enough to make up for the mask covering her mouth, and an old man pulls up on his old bike to hand Elizabeth a sandwich. 66-year-old Jose Everaldo Reyes knows what I'm talking about when it comes to Liz. He makes a point of pedaling his little blue bike through the site a couple of times each workday, just to see her, just to feed a little off of that positive energy she hoses everyone down with that comes off that stinking bridge from the city to the island. As of late, Mr. Reyes has been bringing Liz lunch, something she accepts on occasion. Who doesn't want a sandwich at any given time? Even if it was made by a complete stranger, one who looks like he bays whenever the rain catches him bent over the handlebars of his bike or a promising trash can. To Elizabeth, Jose is sweet, non-threatening, just a harmless older guy and never one to be unnecessarily rude. Liz will almost always take the bait from these types. She, of course, doesn't know it's bait. There's nothing scary or aggressive about Jose Reyes. He's small in stature, thin, and anyone who knew the 66-year-old would have told you they felt the same as Elizabeth likely did. Reyes was harmless. Reyes was friendly, helpful. The older man lived in a basement somewhere in the South Bronx, a mainly Spanish-speaking neighborhood where Reyes was known as helpful more than handy, but in reality was just an odd jobber. He was also known as Eric, not Jose, to friends. And Elizabeth Mass, friendly as she was to everyone, was certainly considered a friend to Jose. Sorry, Eric. Yeah, call me Eric. I like you. Anyone I like gets to call me Eric. Why, thank you, Eric. Good old, old man Eric. Always on his rickety blue bike. Always flashing his deteriorating smile while taking out garbage, washing windows, picking through your recycling for 50 cents worth of aluminum. In fact, most days the old man had one foot in the streets and the other in a garbage bin where perhaps it struggled to keep footing on a banana peel. He's pretty close to homeless is what I'm trying to say. Pretty close to slipping right out onto that street. Where he's a fixture in City Island. It surprised nobody to find out that his little apartment's rent was paid through doing odd jobs. And basically made available to him as charity by a good man, a landlord of his Spanish-speaking community. Who felt sorry for Jose Reyes, the man he knew as Eric. And though Eric seemed to be a friendly old guy who only wanted to get by and help out where he could. In reality, he was a vindictive lowlife with a hair-triggered temper. He was also a crook. The gun that Eric carries with him at all times is a revolver, loaded, ready for action. Tucked into his waistband, it maybe boosts the aging man's confidence while spending so much time out in the streets. 
It's amazing he can stay balanced while wheeling around the island. The gun is the size of Eric's head, the size of a small cat. Fitting, as Eric's often on the prowl, sniffing around for scraps, switching languages to suit each situation. English when he wants something, Spanish when he doesn't. He's a slimy, slippery character, and it usually doesn't matter that he is. Everything men like Eric manage to steal away usually goes unnoticed. They take what they figure others aren't using anyways, like the beer cans in your trash, or the hubcap from an old car in your yard. They're junkers. The dirty, hairy revolver Eric, Jose Reyes, I'm going to go with Eric from here on in, has tucked in his waistband, is unsurprisingly stolen. Stolen from someone who wasn't using it anyways, of course. A retired cop in his 80s, whom Eric befriended enough to get into the apartment and lift a few of the man's treasures. In the mind of a street rat, there's always a justification for crime. The guy was old, lonely. Eric spent time with him. That's worth something, right? It's not really stealing if you're putting a possession to use that was just collecting dust. People don't appreciate what they have, but guys like Eric appreciate everything, especially when it comes stolen. The purchase price is the risk of being caught. These types actually believe that the effort that it takes to steal makes the crime valid. That if you can be outsmarted into having a valuable stolen away from you, then they deserve it more than you do because they want it more. But when human beings become the possession to be obtained, things can uh, get out of hand. Things can get pretty far out. And that manipulative, self-involved mindset that these guys have, it'll spill into your life, into your living room, into the street, like a bag of gummy, filthy nickels and misfit change you didn't want anyways. Back to Liz spinning her sign here on this beautiful spring day on City Island. The mayor of City Island. She never sits. She stands all day long while starting and stopping traffic. But when it's time for lunch, she'll sometimes find a quiet spot to rest and eat, especially when her boyfriend manages to make it over the bridge for a visit. Eric is not Elizabeth's boyfriend, but he thinks he is. And the sandwiches he brings her almost every day are not made with love. They are made with obsession. So when 58-year-old Dwayne Walker makes it over the bridge for lunch with his dear Elizabeth, finding a spot in the shade before heaving his large frame out of his black Hyundai Sonata, a good little car that's never let him down. Eric stands at a distance and watches in disbelief as the two eat together in the grass. Eat something Dwayne brought and that he probably bought, like an asshole. Nobody takes the time anymore. Nobody writes letters. Nobody bakes pies. Nobody rolls their spare change. Nobody makes a sandwich for the lady who spins the stop sign at the construction site. They just take it for granted, like this big hunk, who she's laughing with now, kissing goodbye, finally gag me with an old, stolen service revolver. He should. Eric knows he should just kill himself, blow his brains out in front of her now so she'd understand, so she'd see his pain. Deep down, he knows it would be more chivalrous, but he lets the jealousy get the best of him. And as the big, beefy boyfriend climbs back into his Hyundai, Eric pedals his bike over to Elizabeth, who looks up at her friend with that forever smile oh, hi, Eric. as he empties the gun on her. Six slugs to the chest. Elizabeth hits the pavement, dead, 
and Eric calmly returns the revolver to his waistband and slowly begins pedaling away. Elizabeth's boyfriend, Dwayne, has been waiting for a break in traffic and shouted out as he witnessed the whole thing. The scrawny old man on the blue bike, whom he'd warned Liz about, having had a bad feeling as they'd ate lunch and he'd seemed to be stalking them from across the street, shooting daggers at Dwayne. But Elizabeth had said he was harmless, that he was her friend, so he tried not to worry about it, all the way up until Eric had pedaled over, then unceremoniously blew Elizabeth away. Dwayne is blown away. He can't believe it. She's dead. Clearly. She'd been dead before she hit the ground, her hard hat displaying the phrase safety first, spinning on the pavement like some kind of sick joke. And now the old man on the bike, Eric Jose Reyes. He's getting away. Dwayne doesn't hesitate. He slams on the accelerator and speeds down a suddenly open lane, a lane that the mayor of City Island's murderer is using to make his slow, nonchalant getaway, and slams into the back of him, going at least 50 miles per hour. The whole incident is caught on tape. It's spectacular. I can't do it justice. It's incredible. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Eric goes flying, his bike shooting out from under him and landing in a crumpled heap before its owner joins it a moment later, having taken the long way back to the street. It's obvious that being hit by a car has screwed the killer up a bit. He desperately tries to pull himself to his feet using a detour sign, but his arms and legs won't work right for him. It's like one of those nightmares where something is coming for you, but your body won't cooperate. And though Jose Reyes, no longer Eric, he's not our friend anymore. Jose Reyes is shuffling away from something that we can't yet see. It's clear it's approaching death. Seconds later, the black Hyundai rolls backwards into frame, and its open door catches Jose, dragging him a few feet before he spit out in a tangle with some road signs. He's still alive, squirming around like maybe his shoulders have been dislocated or he's just Charlie Horst and shit. Then Dwayne Walker comes flying back into view, all 300 and some odd pounds of him. I guess he'd gotten out of the vehicle and just let it back into the killer of his girl. Dwayne plows in like a wrecking ball and helps his sweetheart's assassin to his feet before wrestling into the hood of his car, where Dwayne begins beating the living shit out of the much older, much smaller, and clearly injured man which is kind of, it's tough to watch, but uh, I don't hate it. An IRS agent comes to Jose's rescue, and another witness from the road crew seems to explain to the agent why Dwayne is raining down a fist the size of a canned ham on the pea head of what appears to be a harmless homeless type. Dwayne relents so the agent can put cuffs on the killer. Apparently, IRS agents can make arrests, but not before landing a parting shot then dropping the limp old man and raising a size 14 work boot to crash down on the pleading and thoroughly bloodied face of Jose Everaldo Reyes. Reyes was soon taken into proper custody, uh, amazingly alive. This is a beat down from what looked to be a professional wrestler. Uh, he was rescued from further vigilante justice as Elizabeth's co-workers began to hear what had happened and were making their way over. Our friend Eric, we're not friends anymore, Jose Everaldo Reyes, has been charged with second-degree murder. To my knowledge, Dwayne Walker has not yet been charged for his actions following the shooting. He may not be charged at all. I hope they don't charge him. A bench has been installed at Bridge Park, close to where the incident occurred. It holds a plaque that bears the name of Elizabeth Mass and is a nice little monument to the former mayor of City Island, a mayor that City Island had up until just last April. Though I doubt many people will feel right about sitting down on it to eat their lunch, considering. 
Hey, and how are we doing so far? This is taken from Patreon, refurbished for this episode of A Dark Topic, uh, n- number 92, I believe it is. And I chose two of the smaller episodes that you know I've offered at times on um, Patreon and Apple Plus. Oh my God, this dog won't shut up in the background. You probably can't hear it. I hope that you enjoy. I hope you enjoy. Right now, you have some advertising coming up that you won't enjoy. There's ways around that. I'm not going to say it outright. But uh, if I can spend three weeks working on the shit that I've put out here for you for free, you could probably figure out how to uh, not let what's about to come up in advertising bother you. That's all I'll say. Just use your thumb six times. Stay paranoid. (laughs) All right, everybody. Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash dark topic and watch Catherine's video right now again that's b-a-d-l-a-n-d-s-f-o-o-d.com slash dark topic to check it out badlandsfood.com all right everybody zipix toothpicks this is something that i use all the time so this episode is brought to you by zipix nicotine toothpicks Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting... <laughs> Uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks.
You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. I gotta go pick up my son. Listen to this. As I step down from a train And there to meet me Is my mama and my papa Yeah, I gotta go get Jack from school. This guy, who's not so little anymore when uh, we first started Dark Topic. This guy right here, he was as old as our youngest is now, just finishing kindergarten, but now he's finishing grade six. This guy right here. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello. Out there. There are people out there who make it their business to keep an eye on you. And I'm not talking about social media, ad factories, or the internet itself. Though targeted advertising and search suggestions are concerning, I'm talking about something that is as old as the first society. Stalking, voyeurism, many have learned the hard way that fascination, if not tempered by some form of rejection, curdles into obsession. When the first cell phone with the video camera hit the market, I remember thinking, okay, here we go. Now we'll know if UFOs, ghosts, and Bigfoot exist. This will be the pudding that the proof will be found in. But to date, the body of evidence is less than compelling on the paranormal front, save UFOs. They're real, and nobody cares, apparently. But for, say, something like crime, the information is flooded in. Crime has always surrounded us, of course. It's just that now we have the technology to remotely interact with it. Whether that means Googling your favorite murderous rapist or checking in to see what a murderous rapist wants when it's banging on your front door. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a Tier 13 exclusive. Just off-road. On the evening of July 22nd of 2021, Amanda Nowak looks out from an open window of her beautiful Las Vegas home and sees a man looking back at her from just off-road. Amanda, like her home and neighborhood, is attractive. She's a model, a dancer, with a pin-up girl aesthetic. She and her husband run a talent agency called Pop-Up Performers, where they provide service for events. A cigar girl for your poker game, 
a firefighter for the bachelorette, this kind of thing. But clean. Fun. Amanda is interesting, and the tatted-up man with the long gray beard, dirty tank top shorts, and lumpy grocery bag dangling from his meaty hand on the sidewalk seems to think so too. He stands out like a brownish stalk of corn amongst the manicured lawns in this affluent area. Though dusk is falling, and his type are known to wander out from the strip at night to steal bikes, cars, the occasional woman or child if the moon swings out and over Sin City just right. His voice spills out from broken teeth and past his nicotine-stained whiskers. It floats on a fetid breeze to Amanda from the street, and there's something threatening about his tone, about the look in his crazed eyes, about the nonsense in those words that provoked her to shut the window. Amanda then watches the man through her curtains, then rushes to lock the door, as the man strides slowly up the street before turning abruptly and loping up the front walkway. Amanda's ring system captures what's next. Are you sure? I just rang your doorbell because I have a couple questions for you. Are you sure? I just rang your doorbell because I have a couple questions for you. Are you sure? I, 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 what? Are you sure? I just rang your doorbell because I have a couple questions for you. Are you sure? Are you positive? Are you sure? I just have a couple questions for you. Are you sure? Are you positive? I just have a couple questions for you. Are you sure? Are you positive? Are you sure? Amanda's sure. She's positive. She's actually hiding in the house, on the phone with her husband, then with 911, as the threatening man at the door continues to rap on the easily breakable glass, protecting her from his entry. After a few moments, the man retreats to the sidewalk, only to be summoned back by Amanda's husband, whom accessed his ring system remotely, and began talking at the potential intruder, asking him what he wanted. The man who was just leaving returns to give the voice an answer here. Are you absolutely certain? Sure. How are you? What? Yeah? Are you sure? Who are you? The full video is in the show notes. Yeah, can you hear me? Uh, what I'm looking for is for the girl that's in the house to come out here because I'm going to rape her in Canada. Can you have her open the door? I'm going to rape and kill the girl that's on the other side of this door when she lets me in. I, I want to rape her and kill her because I have a knife. And I just, uh, I'm going to knock on the door again. All right. Are you sure? Yeah, you heard him right. He said that he has a gun and knife in that lumpy plastic bag. 
That's not the answer you want to hear in this situation. Thankfully, the man leaves at this point, maybe spooked by all the foreign technology. First, that lady had closed the window, a bit of magic that the man found perplexing. One minute they were conversing on this beautiful summer's night, the next he's talking to the side of a house. Weird. Rude, either way. So then he heads up the walkway to see what the heck the issue is here and is greeted by a voice. Like the house itself is speaking to him. Time to go. He doesn't understand all this. And here's what happens if he gets in to the house, if she opens it. He listens to the voices in his head and he does what his depraved self tells him to do mixed with those voices. The voices are your own. As a mentally ill person, the voices are your own. And the mental illness is just kind of puppeteering your darkest thoughts, your best thoughts in manic phases, your worst in depression. Uh, Depending on the type of person that you are, naturally, this mental illness will grab the pieces of you that they think are interesting. I said they. And will start to just move you forward like a marionette. If that fucking door opens, he's already talked about rape, murder, the knife. And that's what he does next. If you open that door. And then in court, they will say he was mentally ill. And he will serve some time. And then he'll be released on medication. That's the way that works. Stay paranoid. It takes a couple of days, but police track down the man, walking around, still muttering to himself. When they arrest him without incident and ask his name, the man replies, I'm the Holy Spirit. After being run through this system, it's found that this is 40-year-old Christopher Sums, a wanted fugitive from California, though it is not known what for at this time. Sums, that's S-U-M-B-S, is facing charges of aggravated stalking and attempting a residential burglary. A deeper dive into his history yields that he was once in trouble for a couple of felony assaults in Minnesota. So, a well-traveled troublemaker with some history of violence. Christopher Sums refused to be transported to court on Tuesday. This is just this last Tuesday. Something I wasn't aware you could just refuse to do. And I'm sure there's more to that than him sleeping in and saying, Hey, I don't want to go to court. I'm just going to stay underneath the blankies. Sums likely has been a bit of an issue since his arrest. And by the sounds of things, may be suffering from a mental health issue. Or two. Or three. He's due to appear in court today. So maybe you could tell me what happens. I was hoping to be able to get an interview with Amanda, but it fell through. And so here we are, left hanging, waiting to learn more about this stranger off the road. And a case that for the last week or so has captured the attention of the true crime community. This case is a couple of years old at this point. This is an old episode of Dark Topic that I'm putting out to the public. Um, but if you do know anything about this, please still let me know. Because I'm, I'm having trouble finding anything. You can't find anything on anybody who is mentally ill who's committed a crime. You can't figure out where they are or what happened to them. (sighs) Stay paranoid. 
This recent incident with Sums in Vegas had me thinking about another case, a much older case that has bothered me for some time, and I'll share it with you in a minute. I'm not usually one to cover incomplete or unsolved cases, but today we're going off the road a little. I have had a strange week. My initial episode fell apart with new information coming through, just like this one is seeming to have happened. A young man I worked with at the high school, besides this, he passed away from cancer a few days ago. Then I got news that a family man in my same age in town, a man I know and a family that I know, um, him as the patriarch of this family, the husband, the father, committed suicide. And I tell you all this not for your pity or understanding. I, I tell you because this is dark topic and it fits here. Every day in any place, somebody has something happen to them that the rest of us feel could never happen to us. A kid gets hit by a car, a mother is diagnosed with terminal cancer, a father kills himself while thinking and drinking too long in his tool shed. With the advent of the smartphone came a flood of information that previously none of us were privy to. It's a lot, and we've only had little over a decade to adjust at this point. I think it's screwing a lot of us up. This device, this smartphone, can be a confirmation bias nightmare. A tool to keep us locked up in our small views by feeding us more of what we ask for in order to ensure engagement and ad revenue. I also think that it's completely necessary, a fantastic thing, really a magical thing, to have the world in our pockets. We'll get right with it. It's what animals do. We evolve. Assimilate. See, we're off-road here, and I just managed to keep us out of a rut there. Did you feel that? How close we came to falling in? To the pit of negativity? Don't bother with it. It turns out all that you have to do to be alright is choose well. Don't listen to yourself. You're a fool. I'm a fool. And we don't have our own best interests in mind. We only want stimulation. We're in the infancy of this technology, and you and I are banging rocks together, acting like we've got a handle on the new environment we're in. All right, again. Slipped in a ditch there. Almost slipped her into the river, but we're back. We're going to be okay. I want to tell you two stories. From a time before smartphones and ring cameras, from a time where people went missing and often stayed missing, nobody ever discovering what became of them. The first... Well, the second of today's off-the-road stories will be quick. It's about a man named William Moult, whom, like myself and the man from the road in our previous story, was 40 years old. And now here I am just connecting dots, like a child. William was a mortgage broker who traveled a lot for work. He was also a quiet man who quietly disappeared on the night of November 7, 1997, on his way home from a nightclub in Lantana, Florida. All who were questioned about William and his condition leaving the club said he appeared to be sober. His girlfriend had spoken to him that same night and said he seemed to be himself. Nothing unusual. With absolutely zero leads to follow, investigators watched the case cool, then go cold, then freeze. It stayed frozen until the summer of 2019 when technology found a way to thaw the William Moult mystery. A transport surveyor known only as Mr. Hayes was scouring Google Maps planning bus routes when he decided to do a little off-roading himself and focus on an area from his past. He hovered over the area of Moon Bay Circle in Wellington, Florida, and as he took his virtual tour down memory lane, 
he spotted something in the murky Moon Bay waters, just offshore, just off road. It appeared to be a car. Mr. Hayes, who still had friends in the area, including an ex-girlfriend who, oddly enough, lived right where he spotted the underwater anomaly, used this opportunity to call up, using a smartphone naturally, and maybe impress his old flame. Contrived quote, Hey babe, long time, listen, I was scouring the area around your house via satellite when I spotted what might be a car with a dead body in it just at the edge of your lawn. Could you go take a peek for me, sugar buns? Yeah, oh yeah, babe, I'll hold. And contrived quote. Mr. Hay strikes out, maybe in more ways than one on this call, but gets lucky on his next to an old friend who agrees to go down there and fly a drone low over the water and soon confirms that there is indeed a vehicle under the water. When authorities pull the very 90s looking model up from the murk, a skeleton is behind the wheel, still wearing tattered clothes and jewelry fashionable in the late 90s. It was something of a time capsule. And it was, of course, William Moult, forever 40, and forever on his way back from the club, one hand still latched to the steering wheel. He'd apparently somehow gone off the road and morphed into an unseen ornament of the man-made pond. The surrounding community that was just being built when William had lost control and died quietly beneath the murky surface had no idea that they'd been enjoying a view of a watery grave for the past 22 years. Some say they can still hear the sounds of bass bouncing around Moon Bay some nights. Something that sounds very similar to ice cubes. It was a good day. And I'm making that up. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that that would be a cool story to tell. So let's circle around. Get up out of this swamp and head back to 1979. April 17th, a Tuesday, in a time well before smartphones or ring systems or Google Maps. A time where a fella could still steal a woman off the side of the road in peace, take her out for the final afternoon of her life, then dump her on the way to town and never have to worry about being recorded doing it. Let's ride on out to a little turn-off of the 55 Interstate in Scott City, Missouri, where two active serial killers were known to be in the immediate vicinity when a young woman vanished. Unfortunately, they are two of the most untrustworthy, dumb, and well-known liars of the serial killer community, Otis Toole and Henry Lee Lucas. So we will never likely know what became of 19-year-old Cheryl Shearer. Sure, I'm sh unsure of the, how to pronounce her last name. I apologize. I've heard it said multiple different ways. Cheryl Shearer. But we can, at the very least, pay her story a visit if nothing else here. Ugh. I hope they didn't get her, but they probably did. Otis Toole and Henry Lee Lucas, two of the ugliest human beings to ever walk this earth, seem to recall murdering a girl in this place at this time, but neither would recognize her photo, which is odd, as they recognize just about every other alleged victim of theirs previously. If you're not aware, this duo are well known as likely patsies for dozens of previously unsolved murders, willing patsies dumb as they were ugly, and anything they've ever claimed or denied cannot be trusted. But they were, in fact, in this area, when the only case of its kind occurred here, at the Rhodes Pump Your Own gas station, 
in April of 1979. Cheryl, a pretty, tall, slim redhead, whom easily could have been cast as a distressed damsel in grimy flicks like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Friday the 13th, had been working the pumps alone on a day shift when she vanished from just off-road. Many unlucky factors had fallen into place for this to have happened. First, Cheryl was covering a shift. Second, her normal shift would have been night shift, and this was one of the first times she worked during the day. She was excited about it, and around the time of her disappearance, just before noon, she had called her mother to talk about the plans of sewing some clothing together after her shift. Third, the grocery store, an IGA, which was next to the gas station, was closed this day, a Tuesday. Normally it would be busy with customers, but the store had closed up due to the manager having to attend a funeral. It's a small town grocery. Another employee was due to arrive by noon. Whatever happened to Cheryl occurred in a small space between her having called her mother and this employee arriving for work. And yet another near miss in avoiding the forever mystery of her disappearance. Cheryl's cousin passed while driving a school bus and saw someone working the pumps he didn't recognize. By the time he was able to get back around and go in and check on Cheryl, whom he knew was supposed to be working alone that morning, she was gone. As was almost $500 from the till, but what wasn't missing was Cheryl's purse, her keys, and her car. It was clear that she had been robbed, then kidnapped. It's always odd to stand outside somewhere where something mysterious occurred. It almost feels like the air, the buildings, the trees, the birds, they want to tell you exactly how it happened. That's what it's like off the road from the old U-Pump station here in Scott City. I've been past it, you see, using Google Maps. It's in my mind. So we're not really playing a game here. We're close. I can see it, feel it. And so can you. I know. Witnesses say they saw a white car at the pumps around the time of her vanishing. These witnesses were hypnotized in an effort to get more details, but no such luck. Cheryl wasn't said to be the type to stage something like this with, say, a boyfriend or something. She was a model employee and loved dearly by friends and family. It's a dumb theory anyway. She left her car behind. A car she just made a payment on. Why leave that behind? To ride off into the sunset with 500 bucks and start a new life? No. She was stolen. From the road. And they never found her. Her father died, likely still looking for her in some way back in 2005. Other family members, friends, have never stopped talking or wondering about the whole thing that happened back in 79 in Scott City. And it's just one of those things that happens sometimes. All of the time. When nobody's around to see it. And these days, thanks to our technology, we see it more often. What happened or could happen. And I'm sure that's a deterrent keeps a few prospective killers on the road. My question, I guess, is what happens when we get to the point where we can see it all? What happens to the worst of us then, when going off-road becomes impossible because the road is everywhere? Does evil and tragedy die at that point? Or does it transform in some way, like all creepy things seem to do, when exposed to the light? And that'll do it. 
hey, I want to take this opportunity to give my friend Jack Lawrence from the One Minute Remaining podcast a very big um, up-and-coming podcast in Australia, but not so much in North America so far. I want to give him the opportunity to speak about his podcast here right now. It's my favorite podcast at the moment when it comes to true crime. He reaches out to um, criminals who have been incarcerated for a long period of time due to, uh, you know, an outstanding crime. And he gives them the time to speak their side of the story. Jack is so gifted, smart, knowledgeable. He is also a very good person from the interactions that I've had with him. And he's going to shine. I'm telling you, you're going to hear about him soon, but I'm honored for you to hear about him possibly first from me right now. G'day, Dark Topic fans. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of the show, One Minute Remaining Stories from the Inmates. I just wanted to quickly jump on uh, before we give you a taste of the show to say a big thank you to Jack for giving me the opportunity to get in front of you. Uh, to say hello, of course, from Australia. Uh, I'm a big fan of Jack and the Dark Topic podcast, so this is a real honour for me to, uh, to get in front of you guys and, and be here. I quit my job in September of last year with a wife, two kids and a mortgage during the worst economic downturn in recent history uh, to follow a passion of mine, which is storytelling, and in particular, telling the stories of incarcerated men and women. Now, This show is not focused on proving anyone's innocence or guilt. It is purely just a place for these men and women to share their stories as they say it happened. We talk about their lives, crimes and time inside facilities across the United States. So to stop my wife from divorcing me, I would love it if you would pop on over and come check out the show. Here's a little taste of it for you. All right, tonight, the end of a story we've been covering for months. Dee Dee Moore will spend the rest of her life in prison. The defendant is guilty of first-degree murder. Hello, this is a prepaid call from Therese Moore, an inmate at a Florida Department of Corrections institution. My name is Jack Lawrence, and this is One Minute Remaining. Hi, I'm uh, David Jolly. I'm uh, out of uh, St. Lucie County, Florida. My name is Amelia Carr. My name's Helen Kidwell. My name is Jessica Delancey, Kimberly Boone. A podcast released weekly where I'll talk to multiple inmates all serving lengthy prison sentences for some very serious crimes. I was out of AK-47 and we go inside of the house. It kind of caught me off guard there where you just <laughs> casually said he pulls out an AK-47. <laughs> um... <laughs> Right. <laughs> he went to the trunk and pulled out eight people. It's just an everyday occurrence. An aggregate sentence of 100 years. But I ended up shooting my husband. No, I had a stabbing or something over on the other side of the compound. I was originally sentenced to death and now I'm serving two life sentences. Get ready to join me in the conversation as we explore these incredible stories. You have one minute remaining. <laughs> 